The Science of On The Money Show. How many sayings are there around coffee? Wake up and smell the coffee. And, and others, if you know others, uh, 31702-31567. Welcome to The Money Show. I'm Bruce Whitfield. It is Tuesday night, which means we do the science off. And we pick a subject. Um, you send us emails. You say, I'd like to know more about X, Y, or Z. And we go off and we find somebody to tell us about it. This evening, it's the science of the coffee business. And it came to our attention recently that there have been uh, big issues in Latin America when it comes to the coffee uh, the, 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 the coffee yields in, in Latin America. And it's a huge fungus death Latin American coffee crops, and as a result, the coffee price was going up. So we called up David Donde from Truth Coffee, and we said, just how bad is it? And he said, it's very bad, and you should expect to pay a lot more for the cup of coffee that you consume at your local coffee shop, and the ground stuff and the beans that you buy from your retailer also going to go up in price. He's in studio with me this evening to talk all about the science of the coffee trade. David Donde from Truth Coffee, nice to have you. Nice to be back. I can smell the coffee. I can oh, smell please, the coffee. You can. I, can, I, can, I can feel the coffee. Um, take me through. I mean, every history book you read about coffee, it talks about a goat. It talks about an Ethiopian herder. And it talks about the goats got all excited when it ate the coffee beans and the boy discovered something magical. Uh, it's Some legend. of those stories are even true. Are they really? No, not that one. <laughs> not that one. <laughs> I mean, the origins of coffee, Ethiopian, African origin? It definitely Ethiopia, definitely African, and definitely traveled with the Sufis to Yemen. Those, those bits we know. And then, and then there's lots of lore and story like the goat herd named Kaldi and the goats, the frisky goats. But we don't know. I mean, it, it's a bit of an oral history, and it's the kind of story that you know has been corrupted. There's also a wonderful story about the siege of Vienna and the coffee that was given as a reward uh, for the spy and from the Turks and that the croissant was invented in that process as a celebratory eating of uh, the Turkish symbol. To, yes. uh, also turns out not to be true, sadly. Oh. Yeah. So yeah, we have a whole lot of that with what we call the first wave of coffee, which eventually ended up uh, with coffee going to London. And we have the very true Lloyds of London story. Sure. Um, where, where, when is coffee first consumed, roasted and consumed? Do we have a fairly accurate idea, maybe 500 years or is it more recent? It, I think it's a little longer than 500 years, uh, definitely 500 years. There's, there's good historical evidence for 500, but it, it probably goes back quite a bit further than that. Okay, so the first coffee is roasted in Africa. It finds its way into Yemen. It then eventually finds its way into the United Kingdom where they have a very firm tradition of writing everything down. Yes. Uh, Lloyd's of London is at the centre of a booming coffee house industry and this is where the original stock markets originate and we, we have a situation um, where uh, coffee becomes a very popular tipple. Yeah, well, there was some more insurance on the on Lloyd's side before the stock exchange and, and both stories. Um, but I think Coffee got a, a real kickstart with uh, the little tea party that they had in the States, the, the first one, not the current one, <laughs> and uh, the refusal to drink tea. And I, I think it, it got a second big boom there. And then for us in the coffee industry, the second, uh, the second wave of coffee was the invention of the espresso machine. Big change. It was designed to use less coffee. It didn't actually work for that, but it did make coffee, make coffee taste really good. When, when is the first espresso machine invented? Where and when? Is it Italian? It was Italian and uh, around about First World War time. There, there, there are a couple of conflicting stories, but let, let's just go First World War time. And uh, didn't get safe until quite a bit after that because we had all sorts of things with steam boilers <laughs> and pressure. And things like safety valves didn't seem very interesting to the engineers of the time. Fortunately, yeah. we moved on from that. 
More recently, though, the story of Cuffy picks up down to one man, a guy called David Shomer, and if anyone knows fluke instruments, those little multimeters and things. This guy worked for no, them. No, no, you, you'll have to go a little slower. Uh, I don't know fluke instruments. Uh, tell me about those first. If you see your electrician, he walks in with a little multimeter and tests whether your electricity is working. That That's sort of one of the major companies, a company called Fluke, and a geek, and there's no other way to describe him, who worked for them, went on a holiday to Italy, and he said, why is this coffee good and why is that one bad? Mm. And he single-handedly in, in, invented the science of coffee and went, well, there's, there's things like over-extraction and under-extraction, and really applied good methodology to it, not just anecdotal evidence. And from that, we had a third wave that sprang up, not in Italy, curiously enough, but where he came from, Seattle. Now, what year are we talking about here? Uh Early 90s, I would guess. Okay, so this is the origins of what we know as the Seattle Coffee Company. Um, no, not Seattle not. Coffee Company. That was running before and independently to, to David Shum. If, if memory serves me correct, his cafe was called Zoka, and it really changed everything. Uh, we had had, we'd, we'd had Starbucks and Pete's and all those things running already. Um, and but and they, they really doing... established things on a retail level with yeah. the espresso machine, firmly second wave at the time. They, they progressed from there. But uh, that that was really a, a branding, very successful branding exercise. I mean, we we know how successful, anecdotally, but not but, but a, not a story do, about coffee as far as as science goes. Why don't we know the name David Shomer then anecdotally? Uh, why do we not know the brand Zoka uh, globally as we know the name? Starbucks. I think I described it at the beginning. He's a really successful geek, not a great marketer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's the uh, and uh, then along comes uh, the Starbucks Corporation, um, which is kind of muddling along, um, and then comes the man who poured his heart into it, Howard Schultz. Yeah, um, and and really starts. Possibly the biggest coffee, global coffee revolution that we've seen to date? There's, there's no question about it. He built the foundation that speciality coffee rests on today, even though we wouldn't have considered him the father of, of speciality coffee, but of luxury coffee, let's call it. That he definitely brought to the world. And uh, there, was an ex- there was something in the news feeds about two weeks ago about a $59 cup of coffee at Starbucks. What? $59. What, what happened? Some guy had a reward system that said, right, you can now go in and order any beverage free of charge at Starbucks. And he put all the combinations together. I think it's a 36-shot latte with caramel and all the other Ugh. add-ons. Yes, I'm, I'm sure completely undrinkable. <laughs> uh, I certainly hope so. Otherwise, my career is, is floundering. Um, yeah, completely doomed. And uh, he pulled off the $59 cup of coffee. I, I wonder how much it was worth. I wonder. Oh, it just sounds revolting. But 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 we we have seen the Starbucks revolution take over most of the world, but not come to South Africa. Which ah, is brilliant for people did. like you. Did it, it did. We had six stores open up over World Cup time. In it wasn't at a retail level; it was only it was in, in hospitality the, in, in, the, in the Southern Sun hotels. Correct, and yeah. they disappeared quietly, and they'd also disappeared mostly, not entirely, but from the Australian landscape as well. Why? Because the speciality coffee was offering, I think, a better tasting drink, that's my opinion, at a better price. The Starbucks, uh, when it was World Cup, it was a few years ago, and yeah. uh, the last one round, and they were averaging about 35 rand for a simple drink. And that's the trouble, isn't it? And also, I mean, we have been spoiled in South Africa, as I was discussing with you briefly the last time we chatted, about the fact that we are relatively spoiled in terms of the price of 
really good coffee in South Africa. Yeah. Guys like yourself, guys like your your old business Origin, yes. um, um, the Vida guys, the the guys at Seattle, um, and Woolworths have come up with a fantastic organic series of, of blends that they've produced as well. No there? question about it. And I think we at a retail level are paying about a thirty percent discount on what we should be paying at least. We uh, so so what, the the bag of coffee I buy in the shop is thirty percent cheaper than it should be. Yep. If if Why? one looks well, if one looks at the cost structure that we suffer from and that we suffer from internationally, we're all paying the same price for the same quality coffee. It's an international commodity. Yep. There's no saving being here. Then we look at the equipment that we make the coffee on, both the roasting equipment and the the espresso machines. We pay an international price. So the only things really left to to vary the price are the are the well I suppose milk, but I I don't know how milk uh, prices compare internationally, but I imagine they sort of at parity. But we're down to really the overhead of our space, our rentals and and uh, commercial prices, and the cost of labour. And I think the labour is the one we've always said we're much cheaper at. But I would argue against that. And I've got a very good argument against that. I'm going to pause you there and come back to you on that particular point. Also, I want to get to um, this question where the the bombshell that you dropped just uh, toward the end of our discussion last time about every cup of coffee that I consume has been through something like 255 pairs of hands before it gets to my lips. Um, Lots of nice quotes coming through on coffee this evening. Um, Did we have a break before there was coffee? Ask somebody. Um, And then uh, drink coffee, do stupid things faster is another one. Uh, T.S. Eliot said, I measured out my life with coffee spoons, which I think is quite lovely. Um, and many other people who've been completely addicted to the stuff. And I wonder what the world would be like without coffee. That's the trouble, isn't it? Um, and uh, coffee is one of those great staples of any decent grocery cupboard nowadays. So, yes, did we have a break ever before coffee? I don't think so. What came before the coffee break? If you take the trouble to go to Truth Coffee's website, you will see David Donde describe himself as a taumaturgist. What's a taumaturgist? Uh, full of uh, what comes Nonsense. out of the back of a bull. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's somebody who's creative, isn't it? And uh, it, uh, somebody called it to me once. That I think it means miracle worker or something. And it, ah, it got, put, it got okay. put on a business card accidentally because something was required. And uh, since then, we don't run titles. So. Oh, come on. Your, your partner, Richard Kellogg, is referred to as head caffeine pimp and uh, Jose Valandi, your champ, in yeah. terms of being a, a, a South African barista champion. And a lot of the, the quality of coffee goes down to the machinery, the equipment that you use, not only the beans, of course, and the roast and all of those important things, but it goes down to the process. And it goes, ultimately, uh, you can have the best beans in the world uh, and they can be messed up um, at the final at the final step. No question. Unlike wine, as it gets closer to the glass, it's, it becomes more stable and, and harder to mess up. Uh, with coffee, it's just the opposite. That final leg is where we can really destroy things. And it takes all three, as you said, the machine, the coffee and the barista to get things right. Tell me about the Colossus. I think this is sitting in your new store in downtown Cape Town, isn't yeah. it? just near Parliament. This is a monster of a coffee machine. Well, I only believe in, in very old coffee machines that were made with cast iron drums, not modern mild steel drums. And okay. uh, that's a vintage roaster made in the late 40s and enormous thermal mass. And it's powered by biofuel as of this week. Oh, well, that's fantastic. I mean, and the new, the new shop is fantastic, by the way. It's very New York style, very warehousey style. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. Aaron and Bryanson, you've got a fabulous question for David Donde this evening. Well, uh, evening, gentlemen. Um, I was, it's actually not a question, more of a statement. I really think we need to drop this topic quite soon. <laughs> 
I quite enjoy my 24 Rand Grande Cappuccino in the morning, and to give anyone an idea that there's a 30% premium that can still be charged is actually going against what we should be doing. We really need to bring down the price of coffee to speed up the economy. There we go, Aaron. And uh, he has a vested interest there, of course, David. Yeah, tell me about the 255 pairs of hopefully clean hands that my coffee goes through before it touches my lips. Well, first I want to say deflation is going to slow down our economy before we go there, so encourage yeah. the price increase. But, yeah, from seed to cup, we've got a real process. Uh, from my perspective, as, as an Australian barista once said, you can't polish a turd. So I need great coffees. And to get that, it, it really is what, what seed is planted and the hands that go in there, the husbandry on the coffee plant itself, how, it, how it's pruned, how it's grown, what kind of shade, what kind of canopy it has, which variety, as I say, was, was picked in the first place. And then, importantly, how it's picked. Now, it, as with grapes, you can go and pick recklessly and just pick everything off a tree, or you can only pick the perfectly ripe um, fruit off the coffee tree, which is what we really, really, really want. From there, it gets further sorted. It then gets pulped or it or naturally fermented. We need to get the fruit off off the fruit and keep the seed is what we're after. It then gets dried out. It then goes into a processing plant. And then there's, there's, if you can imagine, almost like a peanut, you have these two little seeds of coffee nestled together with a parchment over it. We need to remove that. And then it needs to be hand-sorted, and that is an incredibly labor-intensive process. Every now and again, somebody will slip up in our place and we'll get a couple of green beans and brown beans or the other way around. You cannot imagine how much work it takes to separate it. And these people are separating all day, every day. And then, you know, the shipping hands and the packing hands and all those hands, which are more conventional. And then down to the roastery where it's going to be roasted and then off to the baristas and literally 250 pairs of hands along the way. It's an extraordinary number. Have you actually done the scientific calculation or is that just a guesstimate? It could be anywhere between 100 and 250. Yeah, of course. It would depend <laughs> on, on the farming practices sure. and how advanced the country is. But at, at a typical thing, when you look, at, and I've been to the farms regularly, it really is that kind of number. If you look at how labor-intensive it is just to pick and carry, and these things are done grams at a time, not hundreds of kilos or tons at a time the way we consume it. Which goes to Diana's question, what do the farmers get for their coffee? Blow all, as it's the middleman crooks in my opinion, if you watch the documentary Black Gold, it'll give you an insight. Well, Black Gold's a wonderful documentary and I recommend it to anyone watching and it's really one of the reasons we in the speciality industry have distanced ourselves from just fair trade with one word and, and really embracing relationship coffee and fair trade with two words. Not that fair trade with one word does and embrace those concepts. But the idea that the commodity coffee is not, a, is, is not a sustainable price for people to farm and the alternatives to, farm, to farming coffee, as you'll see in black gold, are, are things like quat and other hallucinogens, essentially, and we really need the coffee planted. If you look at the speciality world, we're paying a premium for quality, just like you would with grapes on a farm. Sure. And that premium is a livable wage. It's more than that. It's, it's over double even the fair trade price that, that is the average price paid for what we'd call a quality coffee or a coffee that, that speciality would score over 80 points out of a 100 system or 85 points. And most speciality roasters would be buying coffees in the 90 plus range. And for that, we're paying a serious premium to get our hands on the coffee. Herbert in Morningside says, in your guest's opinion, uh, what about the coffee pods that we use? They use, not we. 
they use, Herbert uses, uh, these days, the, the Nespressos of the world. Uh, what is your opinion of those, David? They are changing. No swear words. They're no cha- words. <laughs> I won't use them. I can think them. The, the, um, it really has changed the landscape in terms of convenience. In terms of outright absolute quality, it's not playing the game. For us, to get the, uh, the utmost out of a bean, you want it within a week or two weeks of roasting. Up to four weeks would be the maximum. And you want to grind it within minutes of using it. So to, to get the, that last 30% out of the coffee, no chance from a pod. But if you don't know what you're doing, if you don't know how to run an espresso machine or you can't afford a good one, you're probably going to get a much better quality than an untrained hand on a bad machine. Quick question. How much do I need to pay for a machine for a good quality machine? Uh, the most I've spent is about a quarter of a million rand. But, okay, uh, but that's in the shop. <laughs> but essentially, uh, somebody earlier today on the station was talking about an AeroPress, which is a, a plastic thing, which is often referred to uh, colloquially as the penis pump because that's a little bit what it looks like. And that I produces... Know, right? A, no, me neither. I just, I just go by the reference <laughs> material. And uh, that'll set you back three to 400 rand for, for great extracted coffee. We've, we, we sell something called an ABID, which is a very much like the Melito of our childhood, but it doesn't let the coffee out until you decide the times run long enough. Ah. And then you get your espresso machines. Now, for a real espresso machine, forget about the, the sort of war of pressure where, every, you know, one guy went 10 bar and the next guy went 11 bar, 12 bar. Now, I think they're up to 15 bar in, in that little mini war. A good commercial quality machine, whether one head or three head, is going to set you back at least 15,000 rand. And the grinder, which is more important, five to 7,000 rand minimum. It's cheaper to stop at your shop and buy a cup of coffee. A whole lot cheaper. Like most hobbies, you're better <laughs> off getting a professional to do it. There we go. David Donde, so nice to have you. Thank you so much for coming in this evening. Uh, the man behind Truth Coffee this evening, the science of coffee. Now you know why the price, unfortunately, has to go up.